Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. At the door, Bosch said, You know if you bust Porter down, He'll just get sent back here to the table. Then where will you be? Next year, how many cases will still be open? Pound's eyebrows went up as he considered this. If you let him go, you'll get a replacement. A lot of sharp people on the other tables. Me and over on the juvenile table is good. You bring him over to our table and I'll bet you'll see your stats go up. But if you go ahead and bust Porter, bring him back, we might be doing this again next year. Pounds waited a moment to make sure Bosch was done before speaking. What's with you, Bosch? When it comes to investigations, Porter can't carry your lunch. Yet you stand there trying to save his ass. What's the point? There is no point, Lieutenant. I guess that's the point. Get me? Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I am Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Also, please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages which are set up just for our fans. Now that all that's out of the way, it's time to get back to work and probe deep into the black ice. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored chapters one through four of the black ice, where Harry is listening to the police band radio because he's detected on call for Christmas night. When he comes across the radio discussing a murder in his jurisdiction, Harry calls the station and finds out what it's all about and why he wasn't called. The lieutenant tells them that they suspect the body is that of Calexico Moore, a cop who was in missing for a week. A decision was made in the field to call Robert Homicide Division because of the nature of the investigation. Harry becomes curious and goes to the scene anyway. Harry speaks to promoted Assistant Chief Irving. Assistant Chief Irving tells Bosch that RHD has the case and he's not on it. While Bosch and Irving are talking, the suicide note is found, which says, I found out who I was. Upon second thought, Assistant Chief Irving gives Harry the unpleasant task of informing Moore's estranged wife of the current investigative status. While performing the next akin notice, Harry's drawn to Sylvia Moore, seeing in her the quiet strength that he admires. After comforting Sylvia and back at his home, Bosch contemplates Moore's note and the secret desire to find out the answer to, I found out who I was. During this episode, we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 5 through 8. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. Let's open up the murder book and turn a page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. The next morning, Harry is again told to stay off the Moore case. Instead, he is given a stack of cases that another detective left behind deciding to put in for stress-related leave. Harry is told to pick one case and clear before New Year's in order to improve the division statistics. When Harry reviews the cases, he discovers that the most recent one, the beating of a deaf Juan Doe, involves Moore. As Harry begins to investigate this case, he receives a call from Moore's co-workers, telling him they found a case file in Moore's scout car that had a note requesting Harry Bosch receive it. 
Harry reviews this file, discovering that Moore was putting together a file on Black Ice, a street drug originally from Hawaii that is now being sold by Mexicans. Harry knows this file is intended to answer some questions Harry had about the case involving the death of a Hawaiian drug dealer. In the file, there's a reference to an arrest of a local drug dealer whose arrest was precipitated by a tip. Harry learns the source of this tip was his victim, suggesting that the murder was in retaliation. Bosch receives an unofficial briefing concerning the crime scene about Moore. The crime scene tech expressed concerns that the room appeared to have been wiped clean. And it gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 5 through 8 is Too Many Coincidences. Okay, we're back and we're hitting the streets. And you know, we start off chapter five by Harry driving to the station. And you know, one of the things that drew me into Michael Connolly and his writing of Harry Bosch is his ability to make me feel as though I'm part of Harry. And when he drives, uh, when Michael writes about Harry driving into the station and all the different roads he takes, you kind of like feel Am I the only one? Did any other person, you know, Google or, you know, look at the streets, especially on Google Maps and see how the streets, when you, the the, the way, uh, the route that Harry took to get into Wilcox, was I the only person ever done that before? Uh, or am I just one of those uber, super, stupid geeks again that does uh, crazy things? But that's one of the things that, again, drew me into Michael Connolly and Harry Bosch and his writing style. And, you know, so then we have uh, Harry thinking about our girl, Sylvia, and he, uh, again, a lonely heart type guy, but he's thinking about Sylvia more and the night before. And, and it seems like, um, you're, again, Michael is not Michael. Um, uh, yeah. Michael is priming us that Sylvia is going to somehow be uh, important in, in this particular book. And we get a description when Harry arrives at Wilcox and it gets into the station. We get a sense of the doom and gloom that has fell over the the uh, unit or the actual district. And again, from um, from the book, the other detectives sat at their tables with their heads down, most quietly on the phones or with their faces buried in the paperwork that haunted their lives with a never-ending cease, ceasing flow. You know, well, one, let's talk about the, the paperwork. Again, uh, it's a bureaucracy. We are a bureaucracy, but you never, it never seems as though the paper always is there. The paper never stops. The paperwork is always and constantly flowing in law enforcement. But this dooming gloom uh, that does fall over a particular unit when a fellow officer in the line of duty or not dies because, you know, you wake up. <laughs> it's sad, but unsaid. Just think about it. Our job. Well, my ex job, but for 29 plus years, for 29 plus years, I woke up not knowing if I was going to come home that day and all cops feel, I mean, that sounds crazy, but think about a job that you, you have the possibility not knowing that you're going to come back to work that day because you are in the line. You are the thin blue line. And now one of their own is, and it took himself. He took, you know, it appears as though he, 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 he uh, committed suicide and that's hard for any law enforcement agency to or personnel to go through. And not just, you know, it's different when, well, let me see. I never had, I can't remember being involved with someone committing suicide in my unit or squad. But I, I was involved with a couple of officers getting killed in the line of duty. And Again, it, it just brings it. You think about it, but you don't think about it. You deal with it, but you don't really deal with it until it hits you right square between the eyes that, you know, um, you uh, you like I said, you wake up that day, you go out to work, not knowing that you can come, that you're not going to make it back home. And it's definitely takes a toll on friends and family. And you got to have a strong 
network of support behind you, understanding you would do your utmost to stay proficient and safe. But they kind of understand that kind of goes along with the job. And then as we, um, as uh, after uh, Harry talks to Edgar, you know, Pounds and Pounds invites Harry into his office. <laughs> you know, uh, our boy Pounds. Um, Michael gives us the measure of who Pounds is and what Pounds is all about. And a quick description of who Pounds is. Think about it. You know, Pounds uh, takes two, you know, everything he's had, has a headache or something. He takes two aspirin and chucks them in his pot, in his mouth, and, but then chokes and runs to get some water trying to be cool. Now, by this time, any person knows that, especially aspirin back then wasn't coded or, you know, this kind of coded aspirin. It was a chalky white aspirin that it will stick to your throat. Everyone knew that everyone knew you would drink. So uh, make, you have, make sure you had some water, but here's his fucking pounds trying to be Mr. Cool, but that's the type of guy he is. He's not really cool, but he's trying to be cool and pop aspirin in his mouth and gets almost chokes himself to death. But I, I, I again, I like how Michael sets us up to kind of get the measurement of pounds and some, here's some foreshadowing again. I'm not no spoilers, but here's some foreshadowing that Michael does because Michael says, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, Harry had to fight back to urge to throw this guy through the window. So after after pounds pontificates on, you know, the closure raid and, you know, the public trust, Harry comes back over the top and says, well, I don't think things could get too much worse right now you know, when it concerning um, the public trust. And, you know, again, remember, this is around the time of Rodney King. And, again, I talked about Rodney King before, so I'm not going to really go back into Rodney King and, you know, all the things that happened. But, you know, sometimes you have to push back on management as a detective. You got to push back on management because, or you got to call it bluff because at this particular, you know, this interaction between Pounds and Harry, Pounds kind of, you know, you know, throws this veiled threat that, hey, I, I put you on the Hollywood table. I can then take you off anytime I want to. I can put you back on, on robbery. And so Harry says, well, then where would your closure rate then be? And so you have to push back on management because if you don't, they will run over you. If you don't push back on them uh, because they, management takes advantage of your earning your, your yearning to want to do the right job or do a good job and, you know, staying late you know, not being paid or, you know, doing extra duty, not being compensated for or all the little ways that management, they know, especially good cops. And that's why Pounds is having this conversation with Harry, not to say that the other detectives aren't good. So we have right here, Pounds informs Harry that he's taken over another detective's case, uh, Detective Porter. And the reason Harry has to take over this case, well, like you said, he's trying to in, um, have a better closure rate. But we come to find out that Porter is trying to go out on a medical for stress related uh, ailment. So he's trying to take an early retirement or trying to get a retirement for a uh, ailment for stress. And one of the things that has changed over the time since I became um, uh, a police officer was you no know, management or society's viewing of alcohol related I wouldn't say alcohol related stress but alcohol alcoholism in general because even Pound said something to the effect well the department really doesn't uh, doesn't care for a guy who can't handle his liquor and you know that terminology handle your liquor was was code for get your shit together you know handle your stuff handle your liquor and so society in a whole has understood has understood how alcoholism can ma um, manifest itself in the ways to combat it. Now, so, you know, I, I will give our bludgeon management on one thing, but, you know, also let you know that this is how they got better. You know, one of the, that brings me to a thought. You know, one of the things as a young officer, I was always told one of the things that would get you in trouble and, you know, and, and was alcohol, you know, back then it was alcohol, but now it's manifested to illicit substance. But alcoholism was one of the things that, you know, all the old timers would warn you against, you know, stay away from it. You know, it's, it's, it's not a way to solve your problems. Use EAP, um, employees, um, assistance program, EAP. 
and you know to handle your problems opposed to trying to drown your sorrow in alcohol so after pounds tells bosch something to the effect of yeah we're going after porter you know for for you know not handling his alcohol bosch stands up and he takes the full measure of pounds again from the book bosch just looked at him over the stack of binders he had the full measure of this man now pounds wasn't a cop anymore he was a bureaucrat he was nothing. He saw crime, the spilling of blood, the suffering of humans as a statistical entry into a log. And at the end of the year, the log told him if he did well, not people, not the voices from within. It was the kind of impersonal arrogance that poisoned much of the department and isolated from the city of his peoples. That is a very good statement because remember between those line entries and any log, it just happened to be homicide here was mostly victims via uh, robbery, a burglary, homicide. What we do, or what I used to do, but what cops do is we're trying to protect citizens and we're there most of the time because something's going wrong. And if you just detach, you can't really detach yourself so much that you don't understand the like like Harry was saying here, the people, the voices, you know, the the spilled blood, the lost property, the human suffering. You can't detach yourself because then, as it's clear, uh, Pounds has become just a straight up bureaucrat. And I really let's give I'm going to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. I don't think he went into being a cop as being management, but you know, so something happened on along his path. I'm giving I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Again, I know that. Management is, you know, we need management. But as we talk about later on in this chapter, later on in this book, is at times it seems like management just gets in the way. Now, I know if I have a, a, a captain above say, well, we, we're the guardians. And again, I understand the push and pull. But sometimes as they go up the rank, they forget how it is to try to do your job on the street. And there's always this push and pull on being an effective manager and letting these guys do what they do. Cause my, my philosophy is a manager is supposed to give me the tools to do my job. That's it. Now you tell me the parameters that I have to do or write or justify. I'm good with that. I understand that I had no problems with the rules and regulations, but let me do my job. So as, as Bosch said, he had the full measure of pounds right here because pounds was a bureaucrat. He wasn't a cop anymore. So after Harry Lee's uh, pounds office, he calls Porter again, immediately trying to close out these cases. <laughs> he get, uh, we get a sense of Michael's ability to let us, the readers, or at least you guys, the readers into the whole squad room, because at times, you know, most of the times cops act, act as though or most people, but cops specifically act as though they're not listening to your conversation, especially those squad rooms are so small. Your table and desk are right next to each other. So it's kind of hard to have a personal conversation. Again, back then, there was no cell phone. And I'm pretty sure the nearest, you know, we used to have one phone where you want to take make personal phone calls. It was off in the room, you know, down the room, hallway, up the stairs by itself. But here, he's, he's calling Porter, presumably, to, you know, get some information about uh, the cases, which one to close, which is the easiest to close, yada, yada, yada. But <laughs> I like how... Michael says, you know, he was calling uh, Porter and everyone in the squad room wasn't even acting as though they weren't listening because they were actively listening because they knew how fucked up it was that he got dropped the bomb on all of Porter's cases. But we also, they have to think to themselves, well, why, what was wrong with me that Pounds didn't at least share the wealth? You know, again, putting Harry in the fishbowl as though, you know, what makes him so good and I'm not so good that that um, that Pounds would do that. Now, see, I'm always skeptical. Harry is, is an informal leader. And by doing this, yes, Harry's good. No question about it. He has skills. I mean, everyone has, everyone has acknowledged that. But Harry's also an informal leader. And to me, this was a way, again, to try to drive a wedge through some of the other people in the Bureau. And because, you know... I used to be considered well, a number of times I got called a prima donna. 
I say, I say that, and the people in my squad will understand. You know, we I can laugh about it now, but boy, at at, at sometimes, and you know what? I I gotta be honest with with you, the listeners. <sighs> Maybe I deserved it. Okay, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'll I'll, I'll write this note down and I'll ask Jackie. Uh, and and because she will tell the, the truth, and I will ask some of my old co-workers, did I deserve the prima donna um, moniker? But I have been accused of being a prima donna, and not just because prima donna, just be, because I like to work, and and I understood. That's why I kind of relate to Harry, because I didn't like lazy cops. I wanted people to be just as enthusiastic as I, uh, as I was to solve crimes. And I wanted you to put in just as much hard work as I put in to try to solve these crimes. So that being said, I think Pounds did this to Harry. One, to throw the load on him. Two, drive that wedge between being an informal leader. And three, just to close, to push down his closure rate. Again, tr- just trying to chip away at Harry's persona when it comes to his squad and how his fellow detectives look at him. We also see that during this conversation, Bosch warns Porter, Hey dude, be careful. They're looking at you. You know, you put your papers in for stress related um, problems, but you know, you got to stay out of the bars because you know, you can't lie on those documents. You know, those documents are, you know, official documents and, if he lies on it, then they can, you know, bust his ass and he'll get in some, you know, get into a lot of trouble. So the fact that Bosch warns him again gives you the measure, you know, the true measure of Bosch. You know, he's probably pissed at Porter in a certain extent, but you know, he understands, you know, as he gave the example to Pounds about um when Porter was a a, a scout car guy and watched his partner get uh, shot in the face. Uh Porter could have took out stress related uh uh, ailment then but he didn't he tried to stick it out and that is a testament to porter and you know let's look at porter port i mean you you just don't wake up and roll out of bed and make it a homicide i mean those you know, homicide reason they you know stick their chest out and bounce around is because they earned it they earned the right to do that because most of those guys are high flying and they really do a good job so porter just you know, we've seen him at the end of his career but, you know, to make it to homicide, let's not forget about what it took for him to make it to homicide. So, you know, I like the fact how Bosch warns Porter to, you know, to stay out of the bars, look out for yourself because they might be gunning for you. And so now we have Harry looking over, again, Porter's cases. And one of the things that stood out from all the cases that he just now inherited was you know because of his because of his experience and training he decides to take the fre- the freshest case to solve because you know he even says it here I'm not doing this for I'm not going to solve these cases quickly not for pounds and this bullshit but for Porter so he's going out at least he'll go out with a high closure rate again that just show, that tells you the measure quote unquote the measure of Harry so Harry picks uh, Wando number sixty seven and. Because he was the 67th uh, decedent uh, uh, Latina uh, in that that year, and this this case becomes very interesting because again Harry starts doing some just you know courtesy checks. You know he reads over the case file and he sees that Wando's body was found by uh, Officer Eleven O One, which happens to be Sergeant Moore. And the body was laying next to a uh, dumpster at the Egg and I, which, as we find out, the Egg and I is a is a meeting place that a lot of cops go to to, to eat. You know, Michael does. A, uh, I love how the RO or the office, the reporting officers report in a manner in which it was wrote. It was wrote. They he did a good job of that. I, I like that because again, it brought me in. Cause it felt as though the what he's doing, especially back then, what he's doing, he's bringing me into Harry's world, and I get a, a sense of the way he's telling the story is authentic. So after Harry finds out that 
Moore is the one who discovered Juan Doe number 67's body. You know, he's starting to uh, feel impatient, bothered. You know, he fidgeted with his chair, then he stood up and started circling around the table. Uh, he worked it, He worked Porter into the framework of this new development, and each time was the same. You know, one, Porter gets a call out on John Doe 67. He obviously has to talk to Moore on the crime scene because Moore was the one who found the body. Then the next day, Moore disappears. The next week, Moore's body is found. The next day, Porter announces that he's getting a doctor and pulling the plug. Too many coincidences. <laughs> you know, uh... You know, you know how you know how I like Edgar, and I love how Bob, I love how Michael weaves Edgar in and out of the, you know the the this book, last book, and and again no spoiler, but you know Edgar is a reoccurring theme and and other um, Harry Bosch. I don't think that's a spoiler, so and if it is, I'm sorry for people, but but I like how <laughs> one of the best lines, and I didn't talk about it uh, in the last uh, book, last podcast. But, you know, the best line, you know, you know, every time Edgar and Bosch have a phone call, Edgar calls him. He says, Harry, where you at? <laughs> that I can hear that a thousand times and I chuckle. And so, you know, but Bosch tells him, you know, he tells him where he was. But he says, hey, you know, one of the more one of the Moore's crew, uh, one of the guys from Moore's crew is looking for you. You know, so he just passed on that information. And, you know. One of the great things that keeps me attracted to these stories because Michael weaves in and out different characters throughout the books, throughout all their books. And again, I hope that's not a spoiler to anyone, but that's what he does. That is one of the things that, that's one of the thousand things that so far I mentioned. That's one of the things that really draw, drew me and keeps me engaged into um, Harry Bosch or all Michael's books. And so, here, here we see, again, Bosch is doing some follow-up, and he calls the medical examiner, and he speaks to uh, Dr. Colazon, and uh, she has an autopsy report for, you know, Wando number 67, and she has it because Dr. Salazar is on vacation, and I, you know, now remember, we got introduced to Dr. Salazar back in Black Echo, and He's, he used to work hinky, you know, and again, my brother and I, we talked about hinky, but he likes mysteries. He said it in um, the Black Echo. I like mysteries. And so, well, he asked for a referral because he found bugs inside of Wando number 67. And again, I'm just I'm going to assume, which again, we shouldn't assume. But I wonder how many medical examiners doing an autopsy would see these particular bugs and then ask for medical re referral to follow up to see what, what the hell, I mean, okay, the guy inhaled bugs. Okay. You know, what, what is that? He has blunt force trauma to his head. That's what killed him. Why would you care about bugs? So we already know that Salazar has been developed again, how Michael draws you back. He said, Oh yeah, that's right. I remember Salazar and Salazar was this person. He did this. He's the one who found the stun marks and you know, he moved up the autopsy report. I mean, autopsy for Harry because things were quote unquote hinky. So I like how Michael wove, you know, pulled Dr. Salazar back into this book. And you know, um, as he's talking to Dr. Colazon, uh, Bosch receives a, a pager and he does that quick motion uh, to turn his pager off. And the only reason I bring that up because I, it didn't, that, every time I read that passage, it puts a smile on my face. Again, my brother, I talked about me and my antics and, you know, my bravado with my pager and how, you know, how much shit I thought I was back in the day by having a, a fresh pager. But it put a smile on my face. So I just wanted to put it out there. And so doing that page, well, when he, the page he got was from Rickard from uh, Moore's bang unit. And so, you know, he, uh, Bosch calls Rickard and they make an appointment to go to the egg and I. And because uh, Rickard has something that, that Moore left for him. So we have Bosch re responding to the egg and I, and Michael wrote something here that just, I have to share with you guys. Bosch arrives to the Egg and I in a Chevy Capri. <laughs> now, since it was 1993, and I want to give you a description of these Chevy Caprices back then. 
The Chevy Caprice was for for the police package was this Chevy car that was pretty much a boat and V8 all muscle and it was rear wheel driven. <laughs> and listeners, if I could tell you how much trouble I got into driving for those cars. Again, any police officer back then would tell you those cars were great. I got in so much trouble because even back then, I'm I'm looking it up right now online, so I don't know this off the top of my head, but uh, 0 to 60 in 8.3 seconds. I mean, back then, you know, of course, it's uh, uh, 30 years ago, you know, something, you know, 20 some odd years ago. But I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that car was a lot of fun. But it was fun because it was fast. But I drove that car in the, if you drove that car in the rain or the snow, OMG, you were ass, your ass in was all over the place. And I got in so much trouble in so many accident reports because I would not slow down. And my captain, who I don't want to say his name, but he had the most patience in the world because I had got in so many accidents with that car because I wouldn't slow down when I was in the scout car. I wouldn't slow down. And especially during the snow time, I was doing donuts in the parking lot. And I hit the back. I hit, I hit a pole. I don't know where this pole came from. But again, I, I, I digress. And I'm sorry. I just had to share. But we, uh, we had a lot of fun with those scout cars. Again, some of the things you just can't do nowadays. But uh, thanks a lot for my captain for not just hanging my ass out to dry. Now, I paid a price. Now, I'll let you know. The captain, I paid a price. But... It was a price that was well worth being paid, but through his mentorship and his patience, I made it through. I'd like to take a break here and ask you, the listeners, if you can continue to go to the website and click on the donate button and go to either the Children's Defense Fund or the Law Enforcement Museum. And if you can find some way to support either one of those, those guys provide a worthy cause to society and pick and choose. Or you know what? Don't even just go somewhere and donate your time effort to some organization that will, you know, give back to society. I think we need that more they're giving in society. So if you guys can do that, that would be, that'd be uh, phenomenal. Also, I want to uh, tell you, I, since this book is about drugs, um, I have lined up and I'm trying to line up a couple of, at least one particular drug expert. So not just me pontificating, but I want to, again, give you guys some expertise on this particular aspect of Michael Connelly's book. I think he does a phenomenal job of homicides. And as I told you, my homicide experience last, uh, I think it was a week. So, and again, listen to other podcasts. I told you about that, but I wanted to give you guys some other experience and expertise. So I have a couple of lineups, uh, interviews lined up in reference to uh, drugs and drug expertise, especially back in the, back in the day. And lastly, I'm going to start, I put a poll out there on the web and on the Facebook page, and I'm going to try to see if the information, it worked out really well. So be uh, engaging more. Again, thanks for engaging the people who have done it and keep on engaging. But I'm going to put that out there so that uh, I can then get the feedback from you guys so that I can add it to the podcast. And then we have this back and forth, this this real interaction about the Michael Connelly and and uh, Harry Bosch and any other thing that comes up. So again, be on the lookout for those particular things. And now back to uh, Hitting the Streets. So Bosch arrives on the egg, arrives to the Egg and I and comes to see, <laughs> see the guys are sitting in the rear of the diner. Again, Cops sit in the rear of the diner or sit in the rear of restaurants because if they get robbed, you want to be able to react before people know that 
cops in in the back and that's typical we all sit in the back that's that's what we do and again you you the listener you ask any police officer where do you sit in the restaurant or you sit with your your you don't you don't you don't sit and it's still a bad habit of mine i never sit with my back to the door and you know it it's even right now, you know, since I've retired, that's a habit that I have not gotten away from. You know, my wife and I would go out to dinner, and if I can't sit in the rear of the restaurant, which she could not stand, but she at least knows that when we get somewhere, wherever the door is, she'll look real quick. And it's so cute to see. She'll look real quick and see, oh, well, I know where Phil's going to want to sit because he wants to sit with his, he doesn't want to sit with his back to the door. So during the meeting, so Bosch comes and he noticed a manila folder. Um, well, Bosch again, Bosch comes, sits down at the table and he notices Manila folder and Ricker slides it over to Bosch, but Bosch does not open it up immediately. And again, so you, uh, I don't know if you listeners, well, when you read this particular, um, passage, you say, well, why didn't you open it up in, uh, originally or, you know, right, right in there and see what the contents were because you, you know, Bosch didn't know who Rickard was and or the bang squad and then something for more. A dead cop, you know, and he technically really does not have any reasons to be working a case. You know, he said, you know, he looks and says, uh, what's in it? What's in here? And you want to know the contents of, it, you know, something before you you pull it up because you you can you don't know these guys. So uh, that was, again, uh, one of the things that I'm not sure who Michael talked to, but I I, I can see myself, you know, someone slides a, uh, a folder over to you who you never met. Before you pick it up, you're gonna say, What's in it? So Bosch asked Rickard, Hey, where'd you find this? And Rickard said, Well, we found it in that fold behind uh, uh, the seat in, uh, in one of the undercover cars. And so, uh, you know, then Bosch, you know, he, him and Rickard go back and forth. And one of the, again, old, old, old uh, terminology. You know, Bosch said, yeah, when I, when I met with um, Moore, he was saying the shoe flies were around. So, you know, Rick goes on further to explain that, you know, ID was all over Moore's stuff to include his typewriter. And he even took the only typewriter. Now, again, my younger listeners, you, not, you might not understand how important. Now, we never took the physical typewriter. Well, I guess you had to upon thinking about it. But most of the time, we just took the ribbon. Because back then, a typewriter, we had ribbons, and ribbon went from left to right. And as you typed, the ribbons moved across the striking letter that you typed in. And so you could then take that ribbon and then rewind it and see what was some of the letters and or correspondence that was typed out on that typewriter. Now, sometimes people had to take, because even though you would not believe it, some typewriters... um, were unique like a fingerprint because if you replaced uh, a letter and when you typed it, it maybe was a little up, a little bit down. So if you wanted to prove that that typewriter was the one who typed this particular letter, you would have to take the typewriter. But most of the time what we did was back then, if you did an investigation, we just took the ribbon. Now, again, why ID took the whole typewriter? Well, I think at the time we developed that Chastain was the one that was on more and Chastain has, has a reputation, you know, sustained Chastain. Again, we went over that and I'm, I'm going to say it was probably a dick move on a way to harass the unit is a, it's a ever present reminder. The ID is looking at you because you now have to go to someone else's unit to get that tie right or the type and, or, even if you, if you were in the building, you didn't know ID was investigating Sergeant Moore. You know, I'm going up to someone else's office, say, hey, can I borrow your typewriter? And they go, what the fuck is wrong with use your own typewriter? Oh, well, ID took it. And then, then the other person like, well, what the fuck ID take your typewriter for? So to me, I, you know, I think based on my training experience, it was a dick move on Chastain and or the ID people to take the guy typewriter also. Because again, you can document the fact that that typewriter you know if you're trying to um you know try to use that the actual typewriter itself to kind of like do a quote-unquote fingerprint or a very specific very unique uh particular uh 
type or 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 letter is unique to that typewriter, then I guess yeah, you could take it. But you have the letter, you have the ribbon. The ribbon matches up, and you document it came off that typewriter. So I don't know. I I think it was a dick move. You know. Also, Ricker tells Bosch that Cal told him that Sylvia is the one who called IED on more, you know, because they, you know, they, you know, they, because they're breaking up and this is a big contradiction, but you know, a boy more, I mean, our boy Bosch, you know, says, well, you know what? I, I kind of want to believe Sylvia and that she, you know, basically the way she told the story that, that she wasn't the one who called ID and he kind of believed her. And so after Bosch leaves the, the table with Ricker and them, he goes into the, to his car and he now reviews the contents of the folder that more that Cal Moore left for him. And inside there was some FI or Phil interview cards. And again, I want to bring you guys, uh, int- uh, bring, bring you back to what I was saying, how valuable Phil interview cards or FI cards were and are to law enforcement, especially any investigator. So I'm going to describe in, in my day, again, before computers and all the ways that, you now could, you know, you can make links in computers. We didn't have computers back then. So what we did was there was a form called a FI or field interview card. And so when an officer or a, a police officer interacted with somebody, this card was in triplicates. So, you know, you had these, like these carbons, not the carbons, but if you wrote on the top and press hard, it went to three other, actually four, it was four, uh, uh, three other, the top one and then three other subsequent identical cards underneath whatever you wrote was then uh, copied on those other three cards. And so we had this cabinet that had three drawers in it. And those field cards were important because you documented who you had contact with, where you had contact with them and the date you had contact with them. So you would keep the, um, so in those particular, so you would, you would, you would log them or you would file them again by who in alphabetical order. So again, it was Phil Parker you would put, you know, put me under P and you alph- alphabetize it, put, you know, Parker, Phil, and you would put that in the folder, either the cabinet under subjects and then say, you stop me at one, two, three, Adam street. Um, so then you would put in there a for Adam street. And then you would then, you know, one, two, three, you would put it probably at the, at the top. And then the date, which was just filed, uh, you know, um, chronologically. So if it was January 1st, it was probably going to be the first one in the actual file folder for that day. So what was great about that and what was so important about that, if you had to then find out people, places, that happened around that time for investigative leads, you can go to the file folder or those three, like I said, that, that cabinet that contained three separate individual folders or slots in that cabinet based on who was stopped, where they were stopped and the time that they were stopped. I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm doing a good job making sense of that. So again, it was very important. So, and we see the value, how valuable it was because Moore had pulled these file or the FI cards and, and they had some crucial information on it to pass along to Harry. So we also have Harry, you know, after Harry uh, reviewed all the information in the, um, in the uh, FI cards and stuff that uh, Moore had left for him, you know, he explained why he kind of stayed away from narcotics because, you know, you know, it was a repetition that the small fish, uh, would get caught and the larger fish would get, go free. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, and I get that, I get that frustration. And that's one of the reasons why I sought to get promoted and to move on to major narcotics. Um, Cause I felt as though that was a bigger impact on the drug war, but there was a necessary, but you necessarily, you have to start at the equivalent, like the bang units, the jump out units. Cause then there you learn how the street works. You learn how to run sources. You learn how to run money. You learn how to manage, you know, small operations. Because then you're able, as you move up to major narcotics, then you have some semblance on what to do, how to do it, and when to do it or not to do it. Well, 
you know, that also that brings me to, you know, I'm always going to give Michael kudos on writing, but whoever he talked to at this portion of the book and a couple of times throughout his drug expert, there's a lot, you know, I, you know, I, I, t- I try to give you one of the reasons why I like Michael because how true it is when it comes to cop work. Well, somehow whoever gave him this information, he, he went to, let me just, they, they, they let him down. They, they let Michael down here because for one thing, uh, just, I mean, nitpicky, but he went to the ASAC of DEA. No way. No, no way. ASAC is going to talk to a sergeant and then give up the amount of detail concerning the movement of drugs, a major target in Mexico, the name, the location that is not happening. I think I said it before. I, I, I said it with FBI, but most feds, they it's, it's, it's true. And I'll say it. And I look, cause I love this line. They eat like elephants, but shit like ants because they soak up all your information, but the, the amount of information that, that, that Moore was able to relay in his reports based on his meeting with some special, um, some assistant, uh, uh, um, a special agent, you know, maybe if you got a, a GS, a group supervisor or a special agent, ah, I can go with that. But ASAC, eh, that's, and to give the type of information so detailed just doesn't seem that believable. But I understand why he did it because it helped the storyline later on. So after Bosch goes over this, the information, he goes back into the restaurant and confronts Ricker about the information that was in the file and why they were holding back on information. And it becomes really clear because Ricker thought that uh, Bosch and Moore had met because of the subjects that were in the file. That that one of the guys was killed, and it was a source that was killed because of the information that was in the file. But come to find out, Bosch was not was not known did not know that, and or Moore didn't share that. So it became abundantly clear to everyone that Moore was up to something. And so after this, Bosch tells Rickard, "Look, I don't want this file, and you should turn it over to Frankie Sheen of RHD." And if I was you, I wouldn't tell him that you should show me that file first. So, cause I'm not going to say anything. And again, you know, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Bosch was even thinking, even why am I here and what's in that file? So Bosch quickly knew enough to say, uh, she should have this. So after he meets, um, with, uh, the, the bang unit guys, we got, um, Bosch traveling to Parker center. And I like this description of Parker Center from the book. Harry had come to regard Parker Center as a bureaucracy, a labyrinth that hindered rather than ease the job of the cops on the street. And again, that goes, I like that line because that's the same line I was saying about your managers that, you know, give me the tools to do my job. Don't get in my way of me doing my job. And I love that line. Again, that, that right there could be, if I tell any street officer, that line, they would they would shake their head and or any street officers listen to me, they'd probably be shaking their head right now. And you know, we um Michael then also talks about coming to um RHD, I mean coming into Parker Center and again boss shooting. And and so we've heard about this shooting a couple of times in the Black Echo. Now he's talking about the shooting here. Then he Michael's just setting us up to get more information about uh, Harry's shooting and just, you know, no spoilers, but there are more to come. There's more to come about this. And I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Well, then we have Bosch going into the um, Donovan's office, uh, the crime, the medical, the crime scene search office. And he knows how to get in without having someone there. You know, he reaches around and buzzes himself in. And, you know, this I wanted the interaction between Bosch and Donovan. If you remember last last book, I talked about how it's important to develop sources and sources are not just people outside the department, but you got to de- develop sources inside the department too to, to get your job done, to go around the bureaucracy. And this goes back to when 
Bosch was saying earlier that he used to be an expert in navigating this behemoth, this animal called Parker Center. And him and Donovan, you know, if you notice, he's always uh, able to talk to Donovan. And I like Donovan, but, you know, so he sits down and talks to Donovan and he tells Donovan, hey, look, um, my case, I got a case here that's, that seems to be crossing over more. And I want to know, am I on the right path? And so Donovan didn't say, uh, you know what? You're not part of the Moore case. Get the hell out of here. You know, he kind of hooks Donovan because Donovan's nosy too. He wants to know, like, well, what do you got? So Bosch tells him, and I like it. Bosch tells him, you know, how his cases might, you know, connect with uh, Moore. So Donovan trusts him. And then so then Donovan reciprocates and then says, you know, you know, about, you know, the fingerprints and things that were found in the hotel room. But one of the things that Donovan tells Bosch is that that hotel room was the cleanest he ever, that he ever examined. He said, you know, it looked like someone had wiped it clean. Again, I like from the book, it says, a motel room is like a working girl. Every customer leaves something is marked behind. And also, you know, Donovan also tells Harry that, uh, that Irving had raided, quote unquote, Moore's fingerprints from his personnel jacket. And that was against policy. Again, uh, I think I, I said this uh, in last podcast, the first podcast, we have policies and procedures for a reason. And yes, he is Chief Irving, but, you know, this it was delayed. Uh, the, the identification was delayed because Donovan had to wait for NCIC um, to National Crime Index computer to come back to uh, confirm that that person in the hotel room was more. The mere fact that there was no elimination prints or any other outstanding prints in that hotel room was a big red flag. But as Bosch uh, laments here, that the guys went in Sheehan, um, Chastain, Irvin, he said, hell, even him, he probably did the same thing. They went into the investigation thinking it was a suicide and all the, any other extraneous evidence or lack thereof they made it fit or not fit, but they made it fit the narrative that this was a suicide. We're just checking all the boxes. And again, I remember maybe last, last podcast, not last, last book, you know, my brother and I talked about, you know, you, you gotta just go into these investigations with open mind because you never know where the facts will lead you. We then also now after, um, Bosch talks to Donovan, he goes downstairs to RHD and talks to Sheehan. And again, we get the, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, the leper. We get how Bosch is perceived to be a leper as a fallen person, something the, the, the department, you know, what not to do to fuck up because he represents a fuck up. And you see people not really interacting with him, you know, because if he left RHD on good terms, people probably be more like, hey, Bosch, what's going on? I haven't seen you in a while. But no one even really paid attention to him. So, you know, he asked for permission to uh, to sit down and take a desk so he can make some phone calls. And so he calls back to uh, Hollywood. Again, remember, listeners, he doesn't have cell phone. And we didn't, you know, it, it only gave your pager out to certain people back then. So you had to call into the uh, your office to find out if you had any phone messages. And so he, he got a phone message be, uh, from Sylvia. Uh, Moore, Sylvia Moore had called him uh, after he gets the information that Sylvia Moore had called him. He also finds out that Moore's autopsy is screwed up and he's like, okay, what the hell more, more now, now again, so many coincidences. Now why Moore's autopsy screwed up? That's another coincidence. Too many coincidences. And he tries to call Porter and again, Porter doesn't answer again. Uh, too many coincidences. Why the hell Porter's not answering his phone? You know, he could be drunk. He could be, he could be sleeping it off, but you know, Porter should at least return his phone call. So then also Bosch, you know, calls Sylvia back and, and she quotes from the, uh, the book, the long goodbye. And again, she says, uh, from the long goodbye, a white night for me is rare as a fat postman. <laughs> he says, yeah, I guess nowadays there's a lot of fat postmen. And so I like that line. <laughs> 
So after uh, talking to Sylvia and just pleasantries back and forth, again, uh, from the book, he hung up and sat there for a moment, staring at the phone, thinking about things said and unsaid. There was something there, a connection, something more than a husband's death, more than just a case. There was a connection between them. And again, Michael is, is setting us up, you know, again, remember that, that, that slow snake. As we close out this chapter, we, use, we see Bosch utilizing his time, the timeline. I used timelines in everything I did. And you have to write a timeline because there's so many, ev- so many things that come at you, little pieces of nuggets that come at you. And again, right then and there, because you're so close to it, you don't see that that, that is valuable and or it's going to help your investigation. So you write down, uh, Bobby called Tuesday, 10 o'clock. Again, you might not know why that's important, why Bobby called you, but you know, it was, it was enough to put down your cron sheet or your timeline. And the fact that Michael writes how Bosch is utilizing the timeline I use timelines all, all the time because timelines, one, again, you get so much information on larger cases that timeline helps you chronologically put all the evidence together, but it also helps you go over and over again, just common sense type things. And so I like how um, Michael has Bosch using a timeline because again, every good cop utilizes timelines. Again, as we close out chapter eight, we have a, a boy Bosch, you know, is saying, you know, he was studying his timeline, but he couldn't study it too long without thinking of Sylvia Moore. So my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters five through eight is the one and only Art Donovan, my boy Artie, Artie, Artie D, Artie D. And the reason I like Art here is because, well, one, he is this peripheral in the background person who Harry so far in two books utilizes so much, but that's, that just brings us to why this particular chapters five through eight, I want him because he gives Harry right now some great information. One, the room is too clean. It looked like it was wiped and him and Harry who have done a lot of hotel investigations know, okay, that sticks out. And two, the fact that Irving went and grabbed a, Prince out of uh, Moore's personnel folder against policies. Uh, again, just a little more ammo in Harry's uh, in, in Harry's uh, pockets uh, if he have to use it later on. So, my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters five through eight is Art Donovan. Well, friends, that concludes chapters five through eight review. Please join me next time where we will continue the deep dive of the Black Ice chapters nine through 13. And thanks again for uh, listening to us on Google, uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening and continuing to give us five stars or better. That's so appreciative. But while you're there, if you also leave comments, because I enjoy those, I enjoy those type of feedbacks. And I, again, always want to keep this podcast ever growing and ever moving forward. And if you could also do me a favor, invite any friends and family to also join the podcast 
that also would be appreciated. I'll see you on the next one. Bye.